This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. I want this episode to be meaningful and engaging, less friction, more getting to know each other better. And I really want to celebrate the public source. Because in my mind, for selfish reasons, I like independent media. I don't care how far it goes in any direction. I really respect that domain. You stand tall. And I know that in a way, you're not just alternative media or independent media. You actually have one foot in what it feels like to be in mainstream media. I didn't know you had a Peabody Award under your belt from San Francisco, The Link. Is that right? That's right. I knew that you were in Al Akbar in their editorial uh, uh, area. I knew you were at SMEX, but that Peabody Award, I think it actually struck me as I don't know you that well. And I know that a lot of your ideas are not new, and in a way they're ingrained. And I want to go down this road. First, what brought you to the world of journalism? I know this didn't start with the public source. I know it didn't start with Al-Akhbar. I think it started with something in you, and it goes back years ago. So I'd like to get to know you better. What took you to journalism? Let me first just say I used to be, uh, I used to work at Al-Akhbar English, not the newspaper. Right. Because their editorial policies are starkly different. And it's almost an insult now to say that you worked for Al-Akhbar, but Al-Akhbar English, we had a completely independent editorial policy. And for most of you who know of Al-Akhbar, uh, the reason I'm making that clear is because of Al-Akhbar's stance in regards to the Syrian uprising. Um, so what brought me to journalism? Um, so you hear a lot of these stories of journalists who dreamt of being journalists at the age of seven and who would walk around and interview people, um, people who went to journalism school uh, or graduate school in journalism. Um, I'm not one of those people. Mm. I entered journalism by means of the activism and the organizing that I was doing in the United States. And it was something that happened very organically. It was not something that I planned for. Um, I'm mostly self-taught, uh, whether it's uh, being an editor or a translator or a reporter occasionally, not very frequently. But I moved to the U.S. shortly before 9-11 happened. Mm. And I was very active in the anti-war movement, later on in BDS campaigns, um, and obviously anti-war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and organizing on more local issues in Los Angeles, then in San Francisco, a little bit in New York, and a bunch of other places. And I found myself always gravitating towards the media wing, the propaganda wing. And obviously, in any kind of organizing group, there's the research wing, the media wing, the agitation. 
And I constantly found myself going towards the unit that was doing research, that was working on propaganda, that was doing media campaigns. Um, and eventually I turned that into my career, so to speak. Um, so it really begins in the U.S. That, that drive to do storytelling in a way comes from seeing protests in the U.S. It very much starts from uh, work and organizing and activism. Mm. Um, the first almost 10 years of working in what could be considered journalism, but mainly radical media, I was working anonymously. I was working as part of media collectives. Um, where it wasn't about branding yourself, it wasn't about making a name for yourself, but it was about advancing political values, uh, advancing a p very clear political agenda. So this is uh, my background that brought me into uh, this work and this field, but also this is what I built the public source on. And when I say I, it's not just me, my my friend and uh, colleague Karim Shayib in the back. I started the public source with Karim. Um, so the public source is founded on these principles that I acquired in my organizing. The public source is founded on principles or on values of solidarity, of mutual aid, of uh, voluntary and temporary association. And the big dream was for the public source to be a democratic workplace. We're not there yet. Um, it's been an experiment over the past almost four years. A lot of people have come up and gone. Uh, we've redefined what the public source is almost every single year. Mm. Uh, we started uh, with, the, uh, with this very lofty idea of uh, rotating roles, equal pay. Everybody at uh, the first uh, unit that Karim and I formed, we were five. Everybody was earning $6 an hour, regardless of what you were doing. Um, equal decision-making to a certain extent, and then through a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, we're refining these processes to see what works. Does it make sense for everybody to have equal decision-making you know, on that specific uh, decision that needs to be taken, or should we form committees that are tasked to work on certain things? I want to dedicate a healthy part of this episode to the public source itself. But if you don't mind, I'll push a little further in what took you down that road, because there's a nearly two-decade experience there from post-9-11 on-the-ground activism to 2020, or roughly therein, when the public source is, in a way, it's, it's a trusted outlet in Lebanon now. But those two decades, are there key moments in the U.S. that made you, in a way, who you are today? Because I, I think, and I don't want to overspeak here or speak on your behalf, but there is a, a focus on disenfranchised people born in the public source. And I think every article, there's that expression. Is there something in the U.S. that took you there and made that the focus of what you do? It's not necessarily about my experience in the U.S. It's, I, I always go back to my organizing experience mm. and the campaigns or the organizing that I was doing in the U.S., um, but yeah, the, the public source um, in a lot of ways was inspired by um, some of the negative experiences that I had. And right. granted, I had always worked for almost 15 years. I had always worked for either independent or radical media. 
uh, and I, I'm using worked here very loosely, whether it's paid or unpaid is irrelevant here. Um, and after many experiences of, you know, exploitative working conditions, uh, unfair pay, discrimination to a certain extent, um, this is the foundation on which I build the public source to counter uh, the mainstream working mm -hmm. conditions for for journalists, but workplaces in general everywhere else. So it's really the media experience there. And it's the media experience in the U.S., media experience in Lebanon, just mm. working experience in general. Right. Um, and that's what shaped the kind of journalism that I do. This is purely in terms of the structure of mm -hmm. the public source. Now, in terms of... Uh, how we approach our story subjects, how we decide what stories we want to work on. Um, it was very clear for us very early on that uh, regardless of what we're working on, we always side with the oppressed. And I sense that there's always a linking to wider causes. And I appreciate Public Source is primarily a Lebanese-focused platform, but there's linkages all the time. That linkage or that way of expressing a problem, is that something that comes out of your experience in media, that you saw tentacles everywhere that were not being exposed correctly? Because I appreciate that you're, in a way, on your own in Lebanon, what you do, or at least having that emphasis up front. So is that, are there gaps you saw in the U.S. and you wanted to fill them here? I'm trying to see why public source ends up the way it does yeah, over time. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I always say that first and foremost, before being a journalistic project, that the public source is a political project. Mm, right. uh, we're very clearly left-leaning occasionally. I, I mean, at least we try to be as um, engaged um, and as truthful to our politics as possible. Um, and our coverage is a reflection of our politics. This doesn't mean that everybody who's a part of the public source shares exactly the same politics, but definitely everybody who has come in has brought their politics with them, and we've allowed um, or we've facilitated that space for the expression of these politics. Like my colleague Yara Mur is sitting right here in the front, and what she brought with her is an emphasis on coverage related to the climate crisis and who it impacts and which communities will eventually be most impacted and to whose detriment we, keep, we are ignoring the climate crisis. Um, so definitely we have uh, a set of shared values politically. Mm. They're not exactly the same, um, but there's uh, a lot of agreement on why we're doing the kind of journalism that we're doing for what aim, who are we in service to. And this is what differentiates us from uh, the media that's supported, financed, funded by political parties or political right. part figures. Our tagline is very simple. It's uh, local journalism and the public interest. So in our editorial meetings, when we're discussing uh, story ideas, when we're discussing pitches, this is always something that's in the back of our mind. What is the public interest? And you might say, who are you to determine what the public interest is? But we try to determine according to the criteria that we have, according to the political values that we hold, what the public interest mm -hmm. is. And this is why we side with communities that are marginalized, right. why we side with those who are oppressed. 
and not just uh, and, and we don't simply side with them in the sense that we are in agreement with you or that we support you or that we stand in symbolic solidarity with you but we allow uh, the communities that we're trying to represent or we're trying to bring um, their struggles to the forefront guide our process to a certain extent so it's a very much collaborative process, not just internally at the public source between the different editors, different journalists, but it's a collaborative product, uh, process with the communities and the movements um, that we try to, to represent their issues or to a certain extent speak on their behalf. So there's a lot I want to map out here, but I will acknowledge that Yara and Mur and I had a walk in New York three years ago born out of a two-hour conversation i believe recorded for a student project and the moment i saw your name attached to the public source it made me happier it's the kind of person i think i can respect the way they're sensitive and willing to discuss things that are not always standard meaning it's not only politics the way i think a lot of us discuss politics that could be geopolitics that could be regional politics that could be boring lebanese politics when I go to the public source, I know I'm reading something that I haven't read before. That includes Karim's fantastic written word and yours too. So I took time. And the reason I brought my laptop, I never do this, is because I couldn't print everything I wanted to bring. It's hundreds of pages yeah. at DocuLand. <laughs> I couldn't afford it. So I brought my laptop. And the reason I'm saying this, and this is kind of, there's a question inside. I hate influencers. I really hate influencers that tackle the news. And hate is maybe not the right word here. I don't trust Instagram. I don't, ins I don't want to go to Twitter to get my news. This is in no way trying to bash other platforms that depend on social media. It's purely subjective. I like the written word. And I like reading through. And I like something that takes time. And your, most of your pieces take time. Actually, the episode I did with Karim, something like two years ago or so, was an in-depth report on Tripoli, but it's not something you can skim. And if anything, public source really is alone. This is English content, in-depth and methodical, and we'll get into why you were on the news recently as well, but it shows that they are even taking the time to read the public source, which is astonishing. Are you deliberately emphasizing the written word? I don't see the public source, or at least I don't go to the public source on their Instagram page to see what's happening or their Twitter or whatever. I go to your website and I read. Are you determined in that that is the way to understand? You want patience built in. That makes me very happy because uh, sometimes we forget to post things on <laughs> <laughs> on social media we'll work on an article for four or five months and then we're so exhausted we'll publish the piece and then we'll just completely forget to publish it on on social media but the lebanese forces remembers the, that <laughs> well it was surprising no, to us as well yeah. you know that they actually read the piece um but no it was a very deliberate choice mm. the long form in-depth investigative form of journalism which was not something that we picked haphazardly um, we made that decision very deliberately because while granted um, an image can go viral on, on, on Instagram 
um, or a 15 or 20 second video can go viral on YouTube or on TikTok or any of these other platforms. This type of media is ephemeral. You'll see hundreds of these posts and it's guaranteed that you're not going to remember most of them the next day, let alone in a week or in a month. But you sit with one of our articles and you actually read them. You're going to be sitting there for 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes, maybe reread certain passages. Um, we've included recently, we've added a new feature recently that allows us to embed source documents mm, right. in our investigations. So technically, you could spend an hour on our investigations, going back to the photos, the documents, the written text, um, and everything that accompanies that. So I bet you're going to remember that article in a month. It's going to have an impact on you. It's going to have an impact and hopefully shape how you think about a particular issue. It's going to hopefully also uh, change your ideas. It might teach you something new. Um, it might educate you. Um, but, you know, this was a gamble. And early on, we weren't even using social media at all because we did not want to be, uh, you know, subjected to the whims of a right. dictator of Twitter or whoever else. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted people to go back to our site. We wanted that to be the main way how they read our material, how they find out that we have new stuff up. Um, so all of these were very intentional choices that obviously we've had to change here and there. We've had to use social media. We've had to occasionally put out an explainer video like we did for um, the Toxic Barrels piece right. yeah. uh, to generate a little bit more attention, but always with the hope that people will go back to the article, that will go back and invest time in reading this material that takes us a lot of time to produce. It reads like a magazine, a bi-monthly magazine. Yeah. Is that from the U.S. experience as well, that you wanted to replicate something that you had seen? This uh, naturally came together. Um, when the public source was first launched, it was not a bi-monthly magazine. Mm, right. But then, frankly, our capacity changed. Um, some people left. And uh, we did not want to feel this constant need to respond to what was happening, which is the position that we were in the first two years. Mm. And granted, the first two years of the public source, there was lots of things happening all the time. So we had a lot of these conversations internally. Um, can we be absent for two months and then reappear? Are people going to forget about us? Is our work going to have any value if we're putting out a bi-monthly publication? What really is the value of this work if we're not responding? And after a lot of conversations, uh, a lot of meetings and planning, um, we decided that we don't want to respond to what's happening on a daily or weekly basis, that mm. it's not our job. There are lots of people who are doing that. Opinion pieces are a dime a dozen. And we saw no value in adding to this ch incessant chatter on one hand and then and being another outrage machine on the other. And this is why we decided to publish the way we have and to take it slowly and to reflect on this moment and to be very, very thoughtful and very intentional about what kind of interventions we make. 
and I use this this uh, term a lot interventions mm, yeah. because that's how I see the material that we're putting out it's slow uh, there's a lot of thought being put into it and it's very deliberate in the goals that it aims to achieve I like slow I'm sorry to sound old and dinosaurish, but I like taking my time with the work. And I'll also emphasize something. It's donations driven, which means I think the work is actually harder. You need to stand out. And I think you've done something which is quite remarkable. You left what is technically more mainstream, whether it's the Arabic version or the English version. You left the Lakhbar and set up your own machine. And I hope you don't mind me saying this. When we spoke two weeks ago, we were talking about a shared love that we have for something that we both create. I think there's nothing better than that. But it's lovely to see that you have a team and you have a loyal team, including Karim and Yara and others. Her name escapes me now, the Italian name. I forgot her last name now. Cristina Calvacanti. How do you say your last name? Cavalti. Uh, see, I can never get this one. <laughs> I tried practicing it before. You have a you have a core group of people working side by side. And there's also Cynthia Isa, who is our editor at large. And there's Very some good. other folks who are not here. But the Joel Shufani is a, a volunteer with us as of uh, a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago. So let me um, let me say something and to interrupt. Yeah. I ask for donations in every episode I put out so that I can keep basic equipment going, and in a way, make a very small uh, living from a podcast. If there's anything that you should be donating to, it's the public source. Because you have a team that's, in a way, full-time doing what they love doing, thanks to these donations. So I, I really respect that turf. But the journey, trying to encourage a Lebanese audience, primarily Lebanese audience, to donate, I think is very, very difficult right now. And, and we don't do that very much. So Unfortunately, you, we don't do that. So how have you navigated that? I know some, I've asked this to Jean Asir and uh, Diana Mellid. They do get funding as long as there's no strings attached. Is that something that simply is a, a matter of fact? That's the way most independent media in Lebanon functions. Mm. And whether it's Megathon or Daraj or us or some of the other platforms, we all receive funding from a handful of organizations, for the most part, European. Right. Yeah. So we don't rely on, on donations very much. We have a donation page and people are welcome to donate. Um, but when the economic crisis started, Karim and I, when we were still planning this project, we were hoping to be self-sustainable by means of being reader supported 100%. But then, Makin and Lion, you know, the, the economic crisis started to be crowdfunding and we having yep. this lavish campaign asking for a donation for a new publication while people had lost their savings. People started barely being able to make ends meet. So we've put that plan on hold for now four years almost, and we rely almost exclusively on grants. But these grants, has there ever been a moment of discomfort? Because I can imagine. There are at times at least discussions or maybe some friction where you have to choose between a grant or putting out something that you really believe in. Has there ever been that kind of compromise? 
uh, not really mm. because there are certain organizations or certain countries that we've uh, decided very early on not to take money from um, and then we don't do project-based funding either because that ties you and that determines your editorial priorities um, so for the most part we take core funding which is funding that supports staff salaries and mm. our other expenses so there's six sections to the public source. I wish I had six hours to go through each one. I'm going to list them. It's the editorial section, which I'll start with. Then there's the disorder report, which if I'm not mistaken, that's Karim's piece going back to Tripoli. The visual investigation. The visual, yes. yes. There's chronicles of the crisis. We're going to dedicate some time to that. There is the public source visuals. A friend of mine, I don't know if she's here, Dana Hurani. Maybe she's not here tonight. She was a former colleague at Now Lebanon, and she wrote that exquisite text accompanying Marwan Tahta's photos of what it's like to live in Beirut. And it's an outstanding piece. I still look at it regularly. Yeah. You wouldn't know these things, but I actually do look at that piece regularly. There's the, was it comic turn? Comic turn, yeah. Oh, comic turn, yeah, yeah. Almost like satire. For the, friendly. for the love of comics, yeah. For the love of comics. And then there's my favorite one, The Long Read. <laughs> yeah. But there's many pages to that. Let's start with editorial, and we can make fun of what we discussed briefly a few minutes ago. I checked the website today, and I'm very happy. I'm the only letter to the editor on the public source. Not for long? Who's coming next? Who's next? <laughs> uh, tomorrow. We have a new letter tomorrow, yes. Tomorrow? Yeah. Ah, that's awesome. Right before we record the last, yeah. you yeah. know what? For the last two years, <laughs> I've been the only letter That's to true. the editor. That's true. And I read the editorials. One of them is on neutrality. We can get into that. But there's another one. It's written about, in a way, it's your divorce with Al-Akhbar. But it's a soft divorce. It's almost like a, it's a separation, but a permanent separation, where you're critiquing their narrative on NGOs. Right. And I want to get into that as much as I can. You mentioned earlier it was their coverage of the Syrian war that turned you off from that outlet. But I sense that this one maybe is what drove home and that you did not want to be associated with that kind of critique. Is that really where the public source is born? Where you're saying goodbye to something and starting afresh and willing to turn your back and say, I'm no longer part of that. That's very romantic. <laughs> Um, but not exactly, no. not exactly, um, but I love that and thank you. So I was trying to explain or talk about or think out loud about the difficulties of navigating this somewhat rough terrain of building and sustaining an independent publication um, while, um, you know, thinking about financial sustainability because the public source can have these uh, grandiose and lofty ideals of things that it wants to accomplish. It can have quality journalism that people respect. But at the end of the day, if you don't have money to pay people, right. it's not going to last very long. Um, so this was just an attempt um, of thinking out loud of how can we sustain publications like the public source and many others? Um, 
how do you receive funding from the European Union um, or from the State Department or from whatever other organization? Um, how much does that paint you? Um, can you really consider yourself an independent publication if you're receiving money right. from abroad? Um, the answer to that question is no. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's possible for you to call yourself 100% independent if you're not financially self-sustainable. But the critique that I was making about Al-Akhbar is, um, you know, this was a while back and they had this, what they refer to as a dossier, yes. um, where they're going to expose these NGOs and expose where their money is coming from as part of this vast conspiracy. Um, I think it's nice to think about, you know, things happening this way, but the reality is that it's, uh, the influence that a donor exerts is much, much, much more subtle. Mm. A donor never comes and tells you, you're going to write about this topic, or I'm going to edit this piece before it's published, or I want you to focus on this or that. There is influence, definitely, but it's very subtle. And depends on each publication on how they want to navigate through these challenges. How do you get this money that you need to sustain your publication while limiting their influence as much as possible? I read it almost like a nod or in a way a, a support piece for allies on the ground. And I think these could be even friends of ours that you didn't feel it was fair to typecast them as enemy. And these could be other platforms. It could be literally citizen journalists. And you saw that maybe they were getting an unfair uh, attack. It was really an attack on these conspiratorial type of mm. reporting. Yeah. That's uh, in, a, in a lot of ways baseless. I think there's a much more interesting and much more intelligent critique that can be made on foreign funding of NGOs in Lebanon. Right. But I felt like this one, on one hand, did not reveal anything new because the majority of these donors already published um, in their transparency report where their money is going. So you could have very easily found that the legal agenda is getting half a million dollars from X or Y or Z. Right. Um, so it was conspiratorial, it was sensationalist, it did not reveal anything new, it was very, very shallow, and this was the critique that I was making. I think it's no accident that it's yourself, Jean Asir, and Nazar My mind is slowing down. Nizar Sagir. Uh, together for a moment, and I think it's quite telling that you're the ones that are in that false, false accusation camp. And you're the ones paying a price for it. So, leaving Nizar Sari, leaving Jean Asir aside, I'd like to touch a little bit on what happened to you and some reflection. We don't have to go too far down the rabbit hole. I know you've spoken about it. You've, in a way, spoken maybe a lot about it. So I don't want to bore you. But three weeks out, yeah. three weeks or so, after what seemed like a foolish misstep by the Lebanese forces and what appears to be like a delayed Cyber Crimes Bureau case, something that is maybe nine or ten months delayed, kind, kind of comes out of nowhere. And you tell me if I'm wrong, it's an August 4, 2022 piece. That's so right. that's almost a year ago. And I think anyone that's slightly older knows that story. It's not something new. And I grew up with that story. I think all of us know that story in different ways. 
And it's not, been, it's not the first time it's been published. It's been published before, and you can actually read about it online. Why do you think that this article made such a stir? If there is already written articles about it, and if it's old news, and you're just reminding an audience about something that happened, why do you think it got their attention? And we could even have a back and forth on this. I have my own ideas, but I want to hear it from you first, why you think it even crossed their radar. Frankly, I don't know. Mm. Um, one of my colleagues' theories is, because the, is that, the, uh, that the article was published in English, and maybe this uh, tarnishes yeah. their reputation abroad. They, they don't necessarily care very much mm. about what the local population thinks of them, but that this article might have reached an international audience. I didn't think um, about this. The English. This is yeah. one. This is one theory. Yeah. Um, my theory is that they saw that we were a very small publication. Um, they probably thought that we don't have a lot of readers. We don't have a lot of supporters. That they could just bully us into taking the article down. They probably didn't imagine that we have uh, legal support. Maybe they didn't think that anybody was going to rally around us. And I think you know they were unlucky because. Mm had this case happened in isolation and had Jean Asir's case not been happening at the same time and Nizar's case at the same time um, then I doubt that this case would have generated as much attention as it has and maybe they would have been able to bully us into taking the piece down um, or they would have tried to intimidate us through different means um, that's my thinking on, on why um, you know, they thought that they could um, get the Cybercrime Bureau to summon us. But, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting because I, I didn't think of the English angle or that they would be concerned about an international audience's perspective. That's actually quite interesting. That could be it. Because Joel Botros from the Legal Agenda in 2017 or 2018 wrote a three-part piece on this a fantastic yeah. um, investigative feature that did a lot of what was done in, in our piece. And I don't recall uh, the legal agenda or Joel Podros being summoned or anybody yeah. finding a complaint against them. And cybercrimes is the one that sounds, that's, that's the odd thing, that it's going in the cybercrimes bureau. It's almost like a bullying tactic rather than what could be just a typical court case that can sort of happen the way it F should. Fizzle out. It could yeah. fizzle out, it yeah. Fizzle, yeah, and it, and it will fizzle out. Right. So this is my perspective. They're not my friends. So I haven't called before and asked, do you guys think I should say this? No. Ronnie, I was joking. No, okay, good. Can I make a very rude joke here? Go, go for it. We've both dated Lebanese Forces members, so we're both guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but you survived three weeks. I only survived two. We're going to have to cut a lot cut, of cut, this stuff cut, out. Cut, cut. <laughs> That's just for the audience. <laughs> You're worried if they know where you live. They know where I live. <laughs> no, no. All that's coming up. That's good. It'll be sent to you just for a blooper <laughs> reel after. <laughs> <laughs> I've only dated one, not two. I've only dated one. one. Okay. And it was very brief. Was it, it was the same like, one? No, not, no. No, I don't I hope so. not. We'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> if it's the same one, we're both in trouble. <laughs> I, I have my instinctual reading of the room. I think it's published on August 4, even though the article, if I understood right, took a lot of time to get there. 
It's not something that was first thought through on August 3rd, and then it comes out on August 4th. It's years in the making, and it takes time, and sometimes it's an article that's delayed. So it's not necessarily meant to be on August 4th, 2022, but that's the date it comes out. Also that maybe, and I'd like to get into as much as I can about this, maybe the narrative is what caught their attention, not necessarily the article itself. Because I read this article several times. There's nothing in it that's, it's all fact. There's nothing wrong. Right. You, can, you can check that article, it's true. Even in 1987, a court case that's referred to, the Lebanese names, they're known. And they're affiliated with the Lebanese forces. So that's, that's old news. Yeah. I think it's the narrative. I think it's their reading, which is an association with the port blast, meaning the crime is like what happened on August 4, 2020. And I think that's how they maybe misread the point of the article. It's an environmental piece. It's about environmental degradation. I guess they read it more like we're just as guilty as anyone who parks ammonium nitrate in the port today. And I don't know if that's maybe why they overreacted. But sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. And, and we don't make that, accusations that accusation very clearly in the mm. piece. But that was definitely the intention behind the piece. Um, and if you'll allow me, can I read an excerpt of Please. this piece for, I think maybe most people haven't read it here, maybe two minutes, sure. just the intro. I have it printed. You have it here, yeah. Okay. Just bear with me for two minutes. And, and the reason I wanted to read the introduction of this piece um, is on one hand to go back to your question yeah. on long form and the power of long form and how it stays with you and the power of this kind of writing. And Cristina Cavalcanti is one of the authors of this piece. Um, and this piece was edited by our investigative editor, Anya Cezadlo, um, who does incredible work on all of our investigations. So this was edited by Anya. Um, this is what I like. One article, all these. This is why I couldn't print anything today. I brought oh. my laptop. Oh, I have a printer at home. You have a printer at home. You're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> So just bear with me for two minutes. Um, this is an introduction to this piece for which the public source was summoned, uh, where we make the connection between the August 4 explosion and the toxic barrels clear to a certain extent. <clears throat> By now, we all know the story, how the mysterious Moldovan-flagged cargo ship unloaded 2,750 2, tons of ammonium nitrate at the port of Beirut in 2013. How on August 4, 2020, an unknown quantity of it exploded, killing at least 259 people and displacing 300,000. How the entire world reacted with shock. How could the Lebanese authorities leave such a dangerous compound unsecured for over half a decade in a rundown port warehouse? But this wasn't the first time the Lebanese authorities welcomed a life-threatening cargo from abroad into the port and then abandoned it where it would do the most harm. 35 years ago, another poison ship brought another deadly payload into Beirut, 2,000 plus tons of blue barrels packed full of industrial toxic waste from Italy. 
So here we go on to talk about um, what happened at the port, make references to what happened in 1987, and then we very clearly talk about why uh, we decided to publish this piece on August 4, 2022, on the second anniversary of the blast. And as I, as during our conversation, we talked about how this piece kept shifting and taking different turns. Right. Um, so by documenting the story of the toxic barrels and revealing the government's ongoing cover-up, we hope to provide a historic record and guide for those seeking justice for the blast. And we celebrate the persistence of all those who work to uncover the truth. The scientists, activists, artists, lawyers, researchers, and members of the public who tried to hold the government accountable and made sure the scandal would not be quietly forgotten. Um, so in this piece, we talk about how to this date, the only people who were persecuted, prosecuted, had any kind of charges uh, brought against them uh, were the environmental activists, were the scientists who were um, commissioned by the state to investigate these claims and these toxic barrels. Um, and I was talking to my partner and um, we were talking about how history keeps repeating itself. And in this case, in this piece, we very clearly outline um, who was being questioned mm. It was not the perpetrators of this grave environmental crime, but it was those who, was in, who were investigating it. Um, so we're talking about history repeating itself, first as a tragedy, and in the case of this summon by the Lebanese forces as a farce. Right. I, before we get into maybe more of the, the narrative surrounding this, this article, um, have they done something like that before when it comes to publications on these barrels? Has there ever been something like the Cyber Crimes Bureau or anything on a, in, in, in Lebanon yeah. against journalists? Or is um, this the first time? Against journalists, no. At the time, Safir and, and Nahar reported mm. um, on, on the barrels. But I don't think we came across any, um, any kind of intimidation of journalists. But maybe we missed it. It could mm. have happened. It's surprising because, again, I'll say it, I... That first paragraph aside, that article is, it's embarrassing that they would take this to the Cyber Crimes Bureau. But in terms of engagement and the way people frame this issue, this is my reading of maybe the public sources dance around local issues and regional issues that maybe most of the articles don't delve into. So that, yes, it's an environmental disaster, but there's regional implications too. And is that a fair critique? And that this article is unusual? And that it's not just focusing on local impact, it's reaching out a bit and saying there's a parallel here. It's regional, it's problematic, it's not the same story, but this is our way of trying to express that. Is that a fair critique of this article because it did seem compared to the others it's going one step further in a direction most articles don't in, in a lot of our articles there are critiques that extend beyond 
the local Lebanese political landscape. Mm. In this one, it addresses very briefly um, the international waste trade and waste colonialism, but very briefly. Uh, what we do in general, whether it's the chronicles of the crisis, which are the investigations or the disorder reports, um, even if we're tackling or reporting on a local issue, we do try to infuse it uh, with bits and pieces of our politics, trying mm. to make connections with broader struggles, trying to make connections outside of the confines of this country. Um, so it's not always, uh, it's it's usually not very much in your face. It's not very right. blunt. Yeah. Uh, but the politics are definitely very much infused into, I don't want to say all of our pieces, but the majority of our pieces. Um, and we have several pieces on Kafala, for example, right. and we try yeah. to do that as well. Mm. Um, and whenever we can, and whenever we're lucky, we try to have people who are impacted um, by different structures of oppression be talking um, directly to our readers rather than us re reporting on, on, these, um, on these issues. It's almost like a blend of climate, environment, mismanagement, international terrorism, and Lebanon being a battlefield for a long, long time and being a waste dump in the 1980s. And I thought that article could be actually a series of articles. But again, the first read, and I read it several times after, because that's after we spoke two weeks ago. The first read, I felt it was just, there was an analogy being made. But that's a quick read in the first paragraph without really taking my time. But that's how it felt, though. And I'm going to guess they probably did not read the whole thing because it's surprising that they would take the time to read that entire piece. Yeah, yeah. I doubt they did. I think they just saw a few words in there that bothered them. And that's, my, that's a hunch. Yeah. But this can actually circle back quite nicely to another editorial piece, which is how we got to know each other again. I won't go too far down this road, but you invited me to write a letter to the editor, which is you. And we, we had an exchange on, I guess, which is... It's almost like two planes of the same story. One is the very, very local impact, and one is the very, very broad, very almost the largest frame possible. And both are addressing the same thing at once. I think these two pieces side by side on neutrality actually live in harmony together. It's almost like two people having a back and forth. Yeah, is that, is that why you invited me to do this? Because I'm surprised I'm the only one. And I, it's, I really respect you for putting that on the website and, and inviting me to do it. But I never really got to ask you why I'm the only one. It's almost like we're talking to each other if you put those pieces side by side. Is that why you put them? Um, I love letters to the editor. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, I had been already thinking about adding that page to the site. I see. So when you are critiquing that editorial, and I want to thank you for engaging with us um, in that manner, and that was uh, very respectful, but uh, I really want to thank you for, you know, pushing us to finally create that page. Um, the reason it's the only letter is because, honestly, it's the only letter we've received. Oh. Um, but also, we haven't really publicized this page very much. We haven't solicited letters very much. Um, just because we don't have the capacity for it, just because it's slipped our mind, just because we're a small team. and uh, But 
um, yeah, um, we love letters to the editor. So if somebody would like to write us a letter, please do. I won't bother people that don't know this piece, but it's actually in the editorial section. Um, sorry, I just closed it. It's going back in time a bit. It's two years ago. Two, yeah, so. exactly two years ago. Lebanon first, in quotes, on the politics of neutrality on a moving train. That's Lada's piece. And my letter to the editor is attached to it. Uh, I forget the exact title of the letter to the editor, but it's something... I think maybe it was neutrality as a shield. As a shield for violence, maybe. As a, like something that. like that. Anyway, get to know each other better that way. The, I, I like reading them side by side. Because that, in a way, offers two arguments to the same problem. Stepping away from that issue. I want to try to understand um, how you see the future of something like the public source when intimidation is on the rise. I had this conversation with Jean Asir last week. He said, there's no changes being made. Regardless of where the red lines are, nothing will change. The consequences are consequences. And that's that. I'm going to guess Nizar Seri is not backing down either. From all that he's posted online, there's no going back for him. A summoning, a Cyber Crimes Bureau uh, summoning, that's shelved, and maybe indefinitely. Let's say this starts happening regularly from different actors, not just Lebanese forces. Does that put pressure on you to change the public source? Or are you married to the idea that it doesn't matter, going all the way with this? As long as we're not reliving the dark history in 2005, where we had um, people like Samir Asir, Jibran Etwene, uh, and others assassinated, I think these kind of intimidation tactics, as we saw in our case, um, was very much um, beneficial to us. Because they weren't really um, a threat and uh, a summon from the Cybercrime Bureau when you are in a privileged position, when you do have support, when you do have legal representation, is not going to be a, a very useful tactic to intimidate a publication, even as small as the public source. So long as we don't have that climate of uh, violence, of assassinations, of people coming to your homes and so on, I don't think this is going to change how we work. Even in the case of the former Daily Star reporter, Hassan Shabin, where they were mm. leaving bullets on yeah. his car, um, thankfully that did not escalate. While at the same time, obviously, we're all familiar with Luqman Slim and what happened to him. It, I think it was a couple of years ago at this point, or is it longer? Early Two, 2021, okay. two, two and a half yeah. or so, yeah. yeah. Um, so the Crime Bureau or any other state uh, security agency is not going to change how we work if things remain as they are. Mm. If things escalate, frankly, obviously you have to take precautions. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to change our editorial line or we're going to work differently, but it will definitely force you to take uh, many different precautions of whose byline appears and whose doesn't, how we work, where we work from. You'll have to have this additional layer of considerations mm. that could even distract you um, and detract you from doing your work just because you're taking so many precautions. But to answer your question very briefly, if things stand as they are, uh, this was a victory for us um, and I think an embarrassment for the Lebanese forces. 
I agree. And actually, I had this back and forth with John Esir. He mentioned something of, in a way, wariness, that things may actually get worse. But the support is real. And there's no real structural support. It's not political support. It's people showing up and not taking it. Is that where you see an advantage this round? And that no, no matter how bad things are in this country, you have a solid base willing to stand with you side by side. Vetroni, you know, uh, the concern is not for publications like Megaphone or the legal agenda or for public figures who are loved and, and uh, people were, yeah. and people will rally um, to their support. Mm. I think the fear is for independent and freelance media workers, people who have who don't have anyone who support them, people who right. can be intimidated. Um, at the solidarity rally that we held, a young woman approached me and she was telling me how the Cybercrime Bureau went after her over something that she wrote and that the person who filed the complaint was a family member and how this person to this day continues to intimidate her, call wow. her family if she posts a tweet talking about how corrupt this person is. Um, I think the concern is for these people who nobody is supporting Nobody even oftentimes knows about these cases. Um, Non-Lebanese, I've heard many cases of Syrians or yeah. Palestinians journalists who get summoned, but because of their legal status in the country, don't want to make a fuss about it. They would rather take down the article, take down the Facebook post, or even self-censor, censor, uh, not to get into any kind of legal trouble. Mm. So for the public source, for Megaphone, for the legal agenda, I think we'll be fine. I think we should be concerned about those we don't hear about and those who have no one who, are, who is supporting them. And in your experience, you've heard that that's been on the rise, and, but fairly invisible. In other words, it's not just her, I guess. A lot of people are getting this, but they don't share it. I can't tell if it's on the rise or not. This is very anecdotal. But uh, Skies put out a report a few days ago, I think, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about the documentation that they had done throughout the tenure of or the term of uh, Michel Aoun, yeah, that 800 people yeah. had been had faced some kind of summon or interrogation or mm -hmm. some kind of intimidation tactic by the state apparatus. So these are 800 cases, right? Um, and how many of these have we heard of? How many of those people were silent? And what I would be most concerned about are the aspiring journalists, the young journalists who are going to be dissuaded from doing this kind of work, are going to just abandon journalism out of fear, out of thinking that this is not worth it, and uh, maybe out of other pressures. I'll wrap it up before we get to the break in Q&A to give you a chance to ask me whatever you want, because you're good at that. This woman... When I met her two weeks ago, put me on the spot. She said, let's have coffee. And I thought it's just going to be a friendly coffee. She did a psychoanalytic trick on me. And suddenly I was, didn't know what I was saying anymore. <laughs> and, and you were smiling. You're like, <laughs> and I went home thinking, what did I say to her exactly? You're very good at asking the right question. You caught me off guard. So this is an opportunity for you to do the same. And you can ask whatever you Honestly, want. Honestly, that, that was very loving. And I, I have a lot of my friends here. You can ask them. I do this to everyone. Oh, really? A, These are your friends? <laughs> Leave them alone. <laughs> you know what she asked me? Something like, Ronnie, what's the meaning of life? Two minutes. 
something like that, but it was more Lebanese context. <laughs> no, I, I, I think we were talking about your family and we were talking about, um, and I don't know if we want to talk about this. You I have mean, the floor. You can ask anything you it want. It was and just, you know, there are some, let's say, I mean, before we met some question marks about your political standings mm. to a certain extent. Um, and I say this with care, you know, the, the trauma that, that you bring in these conversations or in your, um, in your worldview um, and maybe the, some of the political values that you have, some of the nostalgia for a specific area that you have. So when, when we met, I think, you know, that was something that I was interested in, mm. in learning more about you. And is this a traumatic response mm. um, or is this coming from somewhere else? And where do you stand today? How do you view March 14? I mean, there is right. no more March 14. Um, some of these political ties that you had mm. um, and some of this uh, romanticism maybe that you still hold from a bygone era. Mm. See, I think th at the core of the back and forth is maybe um, I'm not a big fan of flattening things out. And I find it to be simplistic. So I'll give you an example. Uh, even phrases that are now thought of as almost one flavor to me are not that interesting. And I think March 14 is not really what a lot of people think it is, but that's my reading of it. And that's because I'm, I am a complicated person too. And I think it's born out of growing up in the same environment. We both have, I think, a very familiar uh, path. But I don't have this uh, animosity to certain words. And I don't have that much, it's almost like uh, love for other words. And I try to, when I can, not put everyone in the same box. So, for example, yes, the Lebanese forces, they talk to me maybe more than I would want them to sometimes, but I don't think of them as violent militiamen right now. And I know that they were. And I know that some of them are terrible people and some of them are not. And actually, they're all Lebanese to me too. So putting them all in one camp to me is also reductive. Same goes for March 14. You have terrible actors in that movement. And in my mind, you have shining stars. Some of them are two names you mentioned earlier. So I, 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 I try to see the world that way, and I see Lebanon that way too. And that includes names that are maybe not so friendly to a lot of people that maybe we talk to and you're friendlier with. I don't think of Rafi Hariri as the same as Hassan Nasrallah, but I know a lot of people do. And actually, I don't think Hassan Nasrullah is the same person the last 30 years either. So these kinds of complications are what interest me more than boring ideas like we're just the way we I'm a Sunni from Tripoli, March 14 supporter, Hariri Samir Jaja. That, no, that's not true. But uh, I don't know if you feel that way too, that you find yourself complicated in a similar way. Or is it easier for you? It's, in, it's actually in the public source. It says it's a left-leaning uh, outlet focusing on marginalized communities and disenfranchised for the most part. But to me, that's also complicated. That's not boring. That's not one thing. That's many things at once. So I don't know if you see yourself the same way and if you read the room the same way. 
or do you prefer reducing it? I don't really see myself the same way. You don't? Yeah, no. Okay. Um, and it's not a question of reducing it or flattening it. Um, for me, there's a lot of political clarity. Mm. Um, and this project is built on this political clarity. And what I hope to be able to accomplish through this journalistic and political project um, builds on this. Mm. Um, so it's, it, yeah, for me, it's, it's not very much complicated and it doesn't have any kind of sentimentality for, for nationalist feelings or mm -hmm. for uh, certain figures, historical figures or otherwise. Um, I was raised in a, in a family that didn't really speak of politics very much for, for various reasons. Um, so I got my political education primarily in the U.S. And this political education that I got was on the streets of Oakland, of San Francisco, of Los Angeles. And this shaped uh, my worldview. And, uh, it, and this is not to say that, uh, you know, my politics haven't shifted and, and taken different uh, shapes and forms throughout the years. Um, I was what could be considered a liberal at a certain point. Mm. And then briefly, you know, I, when there were elections in the U.S., briefly thought about oh, voting for the Democrats as the lesser evil. Um, and then after a long process, I became radicalized. And this was during the Occupy movement. And once you radicalize, there's no turning back. And there's no really any kind of equivocation on your politics on, and on your standing unless you sell out. And that's a different conversation. That's, I think, that's where the, the differences are. I think it's in that word, radical, where you, you self-identify you self that way as a radical person. And I think, to a degree, Should, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe that's where the differences are. Should we let people go? Sorry? I was saying, should we let people go? I'm feeling the energy in the room and... Uh, no, no, we're, we'll, yeah. we'll take a small break. Okay. But when we, in the Q&A, we'll pick up on the word radicalization okay. and then open the floor. I want to say thank you to everyone that's listening to us do this. It's the first time we've spoken this long and we've really gotten to know each other better. So get whatever you want thank to drink, you. order something, 10 minute break. Thank you. So guys, we'll do a Q&A, but before we go there, I just wanted to quickly wrap up the word radical or radicalism. Let me make an offer. You can retract, you can say whatever you want. I think Lebanese media is better because there's a radical platform like the public source. And the reason I say that is because the ideas you, the ideas that are born, I think out of conviction, which is honoring focusing and celebrating disenfranchised communities, marginalized communities. You guys are doing it all the time. Therefore, you should be celebrated for that. 
pushing the envelope as far as you can. That's my interpretation of radical radicalism. It's not extreme. It's not bogus. It's going all the way with conviction. What is that? What is radicalism to you? I, I can agree to that to a certain extent. Um, but to me, uh, radicalism is pushing towards an extreme. In our case... <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I tried. Uh, in our case, the hard left. It means being unequivocal in your politics, uh, not ceding any space, not compromising, uh, not forming alliances out of convenience because you might temporarily share goals mm. uh, with the political party that you otherwise don't agree with. Uh, but at its core, radicalism is about grasping at the roots of something. Um, but when I talk about the extreme, uh, on one hand, it is being unequivocal and uncompromising with the aim of displacing hegemonic ideas, structures, and their material manifestation. We try to a very small extent within our very humble means to do that. Um, whether it's uh, the predominant xenophobia that we're now witnessing in the country. And granted, we haven't done much work on that, but this is something that we would like to eventually tackle. Whether it's racism against the refugees or migrant domestic workers. Um, radicalism is about um, not negotiating fairer conditions. It's about not compromising on how the state of the world should be or our radical imagination of what the world should be you it's know, about having a very clear vision mm. um, of what this world should look like and fighting to get there but those three words uncompromising extreme and hard left i'm impressed to hear you self-identify with those words i think that would be an unfair characterization but you're owning it so d is that a, it's a pursuit that you know will be left to the margins, but you're doing it regardless? Because that is putting yourself in the corner, deliberately. Just because these terms are maligned doesn't mean that we perceive them as negative. Mm. Um, to the contrary, um, social movements have been led by radicals, not liberals who are standing in between. Mm. Uh, not people who are willing to compromise. And, and this could be the hard left and this could be the hard, the, the hard the right. Mm. Um, but ultimately, the world is shaped by people who are willing um, to shift things in a certain direction, who refuse the static quo regardless of what it is. Um, and it could be obviously both negative or positive depending on your standing mm. and depending on your politics. We view our politics, or I view my politics, um, as, um, again, because um, we side with the oppressed, because we side with the marginalized, uh, because we take guidance from people who are enduring the consequences of living under capitalism the most. Um, we view the potential of shifting um, whether it's these structures of oppression or, or even policies or anything else. So there's a battle within, and I, I appreciate you saying this. It's funny, had I heard somebody describing the public source that way, I would be hesitant. 
I wouldn't I wouldn't describe the public source that way. These are my politics. The I public see. source, I think, at its core, aims to do quality journalism, investigative, in-depth journalism. Uh, does it ethically? And this is at a, at the core of what we do. Mm. We are always having these conversations on how we can do the story justice. Yeah. And this is a constant refrain. Are we doing this community justice? Or are we harming them with this reporting? Should we tackle this topic or shouldn't we? Who are we serving? Who is benefiting from this reporting? So the public source as a journalistic project is always having these conversations. Uh, but these are my personal politics. Yeah. So let me say one more thing and then we can go to the Q&A. There's a sentence, I believe it's on the public source's website, that's referring to power and powerlessness. And I like it because the public source is defining itself. Public source is an experiment in dreaming up new ways of seeing in the spirit of transformative politics and its resistance to the prevailing, prevailing sense of powerlessness. So you're giving power to the powerless. And that's, I think, where radicalism fits in. But I appreciate that you're even able to nuance your own politics from a platform you gave birth to. So I think it's a, it's a real accomplishment you should be proud of. And now it's time for Q&A. Is there anyone with a question from the top? I knew there was a question earlier about radicalism. I don't know, maybe now you don't want to say it anymore, but feel free to if you'd like. One of the public sources uh, <laughs> members. was more a commentary about what the word radical actually means. Do I need to press anything? The word radical, um, if, if, if we look at the word radical, it means root. So to approach things from a radical approach means to look at the root cause of things going wrong. So if we want to look at, say, Lebanese society, having a radical approach at society would be to look at sectarianism as a root cause, would be the policies that create the class project that we currently live in. So to have a radical politics means we want to change the structure as much as possible, as opposed to keeping the structure intact, the social relations between rich and poor intact as they are, and instead trying to kind of get as many rights as possible. This is more of a human rights approach. So a radical approach is really the opposite of a radical approach. A radical approach wants to change structure so that you actually don't have rich and poor, you don't have women or other people suffering under patriarchy, you don't have people subjected to racism as an everyday experience. That's a radical approach to politics. You change the structure. Most politics, liberal politics, are about you know, having a human rights discourse. Let's keep everything intact. The rich, rich, the white, privileged, uh, women at the, men at the top. And let's try to give some people a little bit of these privileges. Let's give them some rights, but you leave everything else intact. I think the word radical has been vilified mm. to keep the status quo as it is. And uh, yeah, I guess that's what, that's what it is for me. Oh, thanks for that. No, I, yes, in the back. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any clarity why Public Source was called into the Cyber Crimes Bureau and Megaphone, I believe it was General Security, if there's been any clarity around that. It seems like they wanted us to take down um, the article that we published. 
um, so we didn't go into the interrogation at the Cyber Crime Bureau, but our lawyer went on our behalf to explain that this is an illegal procedure and we wouldn't be, we don't accept being interrogated. And at the end of this uh, small, uh, the short exchange, um, our lawyer was asked if we were willing to take down this article and make all of this go away. And very clearly, we had the, already had this conversation, um, and this was uh, this was not something that we were willing to accept. In the front. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is uh, maybe a bit connected to some discussion you were having, but uh, knowing that you have a limited budget, keep uh, independence, uh, editorial independence with a limited budget. What do you see your audience as? How broad do you want your audience to be, knowing that maybe you have a, a, a opposition to using advertisement or SEO or maybe just limited funds? How many people do you want to reach? Is it difficult to reach more people? Um, or do you want to keep your audience to specific uh, targets? If you could talk a bit about this, please. Thank you. Yeah. We would love to reach as large an audience as, as possible, of course. Uh, but this is not something that uh, we're particularly interested in pursuing as a strategy. Um, because that would mean changing how we work, changing the way we produce our articles, uh, changing even our editorial guidelines and policies. So we're fine with having a, a small, to a certain extent, readership. But on the other hand, this readership is committed, is loyal. Um, and for the most part, uh, these are the people who are engaged in political struggles. So if we can reach more of those people, uh, those people who we see on the street, people who are engaged in social movements, people who are really putting in the work day in and day out, if we reach more of those people, we'd be very happy. We're not interested in reaching a mass of an audience and having millions of hits on our articles that people skim through and don't really read. If we can continue to grow our readership the way we have over the past, uh, over the past three years, we'd be very happy. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Mr. Sama. Hi. So uh, you talked about how you were radicalized and in the Occupy movement. Um, I was also part of that, but in Quebec, and we helped uh, co-found the media group. We do films mostly, but anyway. Um, the question is, well, I have two questions. The first is, how do you feel that the Occupy movement ideals and the whole concept along with the Arab Spring has propagated into our life now in, in general and as a journalist. And the second question is, how do you feel, what, what would the world look like if, it, if money didn't exist or capitalism didn't exist? <laughs> That's a very, very big question. <laughs> I think everybody would be free and happy. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, in terms of uh, being independent and objective. Independent and objective. Um, let me start with objective because we don't claim to be objective. Um, but let me narrow the scope of your question a little bit in terms of uh, occupies. I don't have to pay you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, in terms of uh, occupies uh, direct influence on me as a person and on the public source as a project. I'm not going to go beyond that. Um, but a lot of the processes that were instilled in the public source were inspired by the Occupy movement. 
uh, we start our editorial meetings with a temp check, for example, something as banal as that. Um, but more seriously, our decision-making process, our accountability process, a lot of these different processes that keep us in check and more importantly, keep me in check as the person with the most power in this publication were inspired by the Occupy movement. Um, and with my very close engagement uh, with the Occupy movement in New York, in Oakland, in San Francisco, um, this really inspired a lot of this thinking that the public source was built on. Other questions? I know Karim Shayib had a question. I don't know if he's hiding right now. Where is he? Yes. <laughs> he has two questions. Actually. Karim, could you st Yes, thank you. Oh, I have a question for you, Ronnie, actually. Oh, God, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so your first interaction with, with the public source was about the neutrality editorial, right? Uh, it was, I think, your article, actually. The one on uh, Tripoli. The, you know, I have it here. It's the Don't change the subject. <laughs> no, no, I'm, tr I'm trying to see the date. So that's February 10, 2021. Right, yeah. The one on neutrality, I think, was in April or in April. May. So I, yours was first. Right, then we had our episode in March, was it? Or something like that? I, honestly, I think we had our episode before the piece on neutrality came out, but I can double yeah. check. But I, 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 I was wondering if there was anything you read on the public source that changed your perspective about something. You know, because you read the neutrality, you, you put a lot of thought into your, into your letter, right? So clearly you read with a lot of attention. Um, is there anything else that that sort of um, change your preconceived notions about something? A specific article? Yeah. I think it's yours. Which one? <laughs> no, the, this the killing of Omar Taiba, the one that we discussed. Mm -hmm. I think it made me appreciate once more the long form. During the middle of a protest, in the middle of a collapse, there's this excellent piece on a city that I'm from, and I'm reading it through your lens, and you're there. And I, th I don't remember how I came across it. Maybe I messaged you or somebody shared it to me. I don't remember. But I vaguely remember chatting with you while you were in Tripoli. This is in the back of my mind, maybe two years ago. Um, I think at, as soon as the protests were restarting in Tripoli. Anyway, it's, it's that article. It didn't, it didn't change my perspective on Tripoli, no, but it made me appreciate the effort being made. So I took the platform seriously as a result. That's actually why I read your article with keenness. Okay. I knew it wasn't just, it wasn't uh, a matter of fact piece. It was well thought and I wanted to critique it in a way that made sense to me. I can also celebrate Yara Al-Mur's pieces. Um, there's a fairly recent piece on, on the Kafala system. I can't remember exactly which date it was. This may be going back a few months ago. That's one of those pieces that I remember reading and engaging and learning from. Um, and uh, Zahra Hankir wrote a piece a few years ago. I read this one. I remember enjoying it extensively. But changing my mind, if that's the question, I don't think there's a piece that made me change my mind. But it made me think through my own thoughts better. And that was your editorial piece on neutrality. <laughs> Kareem, what's your second question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, my second question is, okay. 
he said two oh, questions, oh, and not sorry, me. Sorry. It's slander. May I say one more thing? Dana Hurani. That piece on uh, on the city with the collage of photos. That one, I think, made me reappreciate how much effort is being made by capturing this very bleak moment. I think her words were perfect. His photos were perfect, too. That photo, that article struck me as, as quite eloquent. Okay, so my second question. Um, it's, it's for Lara. Okay, so, so since the public source has been around for several years now, and you've sort of seen the different... Um, obstacles and difficulties in running an independent publication in Lebanon in the middle of an economic crisis with a massive brain drain. Um, what is probably the most difficult thing you've come across in keeping the public source afloat? And have, ha has it inspired you to, um, to, try new, to try new ways to, to fix them, right? So for example, something that we talked about early on back when I was involved with the publication um, was, you know, there's grants, right? And then there's also how to become entirely liberated from grants. Have any of these problems changed over the past couple of years? Have there been new ideas? Um, yeah. Well, the biggest problem was you leaving and that can be solved by you coming back. <laughs> You get another um, question, Karim. <laughs> I don't know, Karim. Uh, you know, we have these conversations very frequently. Um, there are a lot of obstacles, uh, financial and otherwise, and the brain drain is making it very difficult um, to sustain this publication. And But also, not just the brain drain. People are exhausted. We're entering our fourth year of the economic crisis. It seems like the conditions have been normalized to a large extent. Uh, it doesn't matter how much worse the situation gets. Um, nothing really is moving. Uh, things continue to deteriorate. The situation of the country is, um, again, keeps deteriorating. Um, so it's, it's difficult, definitely. It's difficult um, to be motivated, to motivate others. Um, Every single member of the public source is going through some kind of hardship, whether it's their families, uh, whether it's sickness, whether th th there are so many things um, that people are going through. Um, so we just do our best um, to support one another. Uh, we took this decision early on to prioritize the mental health of folks ahead of deadlines. And again, that's why, you know, we don't publish, we publish sporadically. Um, we're not very strict in terms of uh, submitting, uh, submitting articles, filing pieces, deadlines, and so on. Uh, we try within our very small bubble of sorts to be supportive of one another, be supportive and considerate of what everybody else is going through. Because mm. um, we talk a lot about financial sustainability of an independent publication, but we rarely talk about the sustainability of the individual and what people are going through and whether or not they can continue doing this uh, very ungrateful work day in and day out. And oftentimes, you know, when you've spent uh, five months working on a piece and uh, very few people read it, that's demoralizing, of course. Um, but occasionally, you know, we'll get a letter from, from a reader 
um, thanking us for our work. Mm. Occasionally, we'll get recognized. We'll win an award. We'll like these small bursts um, keep us going. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I'm sure I didn't, but yeah. <laughs> Basically more of the same of what you or what you're familiar with and constantly thinking about these conditions and thinking about um, how we can support each other and how we can mitigate risks, how we can continue doing this work because at the foundation of all of this is the belief that this work is essential and that very few publications in the country are doing this kind of work and I insist our work is very ethical. Uh, we take a lot of considerations on how these stories are put together, who are they serving, who are they benefiting, and why we're doing them. This is at the core of what we do at The Public Source. It's exhausting work. It's not, it's not very rewarding at times. Um, but ultimately, we are driven by this mission and this purpose of producing uh, journalism in the public interest. We have time for a few more questions. Is there anyone? Uh, in the front, please. Okay, I hate being on a microphone, so I might sit over my words a bit. Um, you've talked uh, about the decision to have the public source not have like specific donors to like avoid having that, that influence over what you're publishing and what you're writing. And does that come from experiences you've had negatively with that sort of situation, either like in America or with other organizations that you worked for? Like, were there, were there situations that sort of like informed you making that decision? Um, and if you could talk a bit about that. Sorry, I couldn't hear the first part of your question because of the car. You said certain jokers? Uh, no, no not accepting donors. like donors. Oh, donors. Um, so they don't influence the publications and what you're writing. Okay. Um, this was not something that I had experienced in the U.S. Um, because the funding model and the, and the organizations that I worked with uh, was very different. Um, but the criteria that we established early on uh, in terms of which donors we associate ourselves with uh, was driven again by our politics. Uh, on a, in, a, in a big way by our politics, but also because these associations could tarnish our credibility and our legitimacy to do our work. So we felt like it was not worth it to get the $50,000 and lose the trust of our readers. Um, so our budget continues to shrink year after year, and we're fine with that, so long as we can continue doing the work the way we want to do it, um, and also in a way that doesn't... Uh, endanger or threaten our credibility in any shape or form. And this is why we've made those decisions very, very early on. And we see what happens and, and, and some of these campaigns that are waged against certain NGOs, certain organizations that take money from, let's say, the State Department. And this attachment was not something that we wanted to be a part of. Anyone else? Oh, you want another one? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, my table is dominating. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, uh, do you believe, well, you have a very good idea. Um, you talk a bit more about being objective 
uh, sorry, I don't know why it's going in and out. Uh, can you talk a bit more of being objective is a goal of yours, or if you don't believe there is an objective truth, do you sometimes uncover something in your reporting that might um, not support your uh, preconceived notions or your ideological stance? How do you uh, negotiate that? Yeah, good question. Um, so on the journalistic front, we abide by the standard of professional journalists, the ethics of professional journalists. I forget the exact acronym. Um, so if we were working on a story and that negates the, the, the political standing that we have, um, our ultimate goal is obviously to report the facts as they are. Um, we're not going to negate evidence and documentation that we find. So in that sense, of course, um, our reporting, while not objective, has to be fair. It has to be accurate. And this is essential. And I think the reason the public source um, has gained the reputation that it has is because it is a trustworthy publication. We're not out to falsify facts. Uh, we're not out to, you know, have these got you moments uh, with any kind of political party, even if we despise them. Uh, our goal is to prevent the evidence as it is with a small twist that aligns with our politics. Now, as far as the, the creed of objectivity in journalism, I think that at this point, uh, very few can continue to to build on this myth that there is such a thing as objectivity because there's never been objectivity uh, in journalism. Uh, and you can think about that just by virtue of me choosing to report on the refugees rather than on the nationalists' concerns. Already you've lost your objectivity here. When you're making the selection process of which pitches to accept, which story to run, from which angle, when you're deciding on am I going to interview Roni or am I going to interview this person, I've already made the decision that I want to elevate Roni's voice at the expense of somebody else. So really, there's never been such a thing as objectivity in journalism. And, and now, over the past few years, this has been dismantled. And I think uh, very soon, we're not going to hear anybody proclaiming to be an objective or a neutral journalist. You know, you're going back to Occupy. I, I know it's not the same person. You're a completely different person. But there's an a independent journalist on the complete other side of the spectrum. The way you're talking about journalism not ethics, I don't think he was necessarily ethical, but the way you're expressing this, there's no such thing as a objectivity in journalism, and you're choosing your guests or your articles accordingly, and this is not an insult, this is just, it's Andrew Breitbart. Does that name sound familiar to you? The right wing guy. Yes, yeah. he's completely on the other side, but he talks about that platform the way you're talking about the public source. I think your standards are higher much higher but the way he frames his goals they're similar and that this is a political battle and you're going all the way with it and i don't know if he would have used the same terminology i mean i, I don't think he would say extreme for example but it's that kind of digital age media finding your battles and fighting them and i guess that is what you're doing it's a political machine on your terms before, is there any other question, by the way, before we wrap it up? No one? Oh, sorry. Uh, the bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs>
So looking at the Lebanese forces case against the public source as a journalistic exercise of sorts, uh, how do you see it changing or not the ways of work within the public source team? And two, how do you see the public source? How do you see yourself uh, engaging your Arabic readership in Lebanon and in the world? I'll start with the second question because it's a bit of a sore topic for us. When the public source first started, uh, we were a bilingual publication. We were producing everything in both English and Arabic. But after this experimentation that lasted about two years, uh, we realized that our readership in Arabic was almost non-existent. Mm. So after six months, we started having this conversation. Um, what do we do with the Arabic page? And we continued throughout those two years to try to build an Arabic language team that can work in coordination or in parallel to the English team. Because for the most part, when we're, let's say, eight people this year, there's only two people who are comfortable writing in Arabic. So our material in Arabic was always very weak. So what we did, Omar, our translator, oh. <laughs> our former translator, I should say. Um, so we relied on translations very heavily. And people don't like to read translations. So again, we were having these conversations very frequently. How can we proclaim to be a publication that's working in the public interest and that's producing most of our material original material again because we're having translations most of its original material in english and it was a very difficult decision to make but ultimately we could no longer bear the cost of translations uh, we failed to build an arabic language team despite very very uh, rigorous recruitment efforts mm. but mm. it just simply didn't work and at a certain point we decided to cut our losses and now the public source, when we put out an issue, there's the majority of the articles in English, and then we'll just have one originally produced piece in Arabic. Uh, again, Omar, it was not an easy decision, and we all realize and acknowledge um, what it means to be producing this kind of work in English. And we're very conscious of uh, the ramifications of who, what kind of readership we're attracting, um, who we're speaking to. Is it locals or is it the Lebanese and the diaspora? Right now it's split 50-50. 50% of our readership is based in Lebanon and 50% is based abroad. And this is most likely the diaspora. Mm, yeah. um, but unfortunately, this is the decision that we had to, we had to take. Hala, in terms of uh, the summon, honestly, it was uh, a lot of fun for us. Uh, Amy, our uh, artist in residence, uh, designed for us this beautiful poster for our Solidarity Rally. Uh, we had a fun little video. We had, honestly, we had a lot of fun. And we realized that we do have the ability through this larger network, uh, larger uh, family to a certain extent of the public source that immediately came to our support. Whether it's Amy designing a poster, Omar helping us with translations to Arabic, 
uh, other people putting the word out, um, Tarek Kiblawi working on the video, and many, many other people who just rallied uh, behind us after the summons. Um, so we always knew that we had, we had really built this infrastructure of sorts over the past almost four years, but to see it actually materialize the way it did, um, and to be able to have such a quick response um, was really incredible for us. Um, and we realized that maybe sometimes, um, you know, our capacity was much larger than we had assumed. Mm. Um, and the journalist Christina, Yara, Leila's not here and Fatima's not here. You know, they designed these beautiful posters as well at the rally. And, and it, really everybody came together and it was beautiful to see that such a small publication with, again, such a small readership was able to rally all of the support behind it and not just locally, but globally as well international organizations, uh, media advocacy groups, journalistic networks that we were already a part of uh, were contacting us and uh, asking how they could support us. It was very comforting to see a lot of friends showing up with you too. And that kind of support, I think, is essential. Unlike 20 years ago, we kind of touched on this where there was more political support back then. Now there isn't any political support, more or less on your own. But then numbers do matter, and the numbers do show up. And I think that's a good sign. Even though the intimidation feels like it's on the rise, people are still going and people are still believing in what you do, not just yourself. I think Jean Asir, you and Nizar Seri, that week, I think it sent the right message. And that n neither one of you are standing down because of intimidation. Right. Allow me to wrap it up. Um, every day, I drive my little silly electric scooter from Maram Khair down to Jamaizi. Yeah. And I usually make this roundabout to get to Alia's. Uh, today, I was <laughs> kind of buzzing around in circles, thinking, what should I talk to you about so that it's not boring for you? Because I didn't want to repeat the same thing over and over. So I'm literally just lost in my thoughts. And if you know where they're doing that... Uh, at the intersection of Jamezi yeah, yeah. and where they're doing the deviation. I think it's the Beirut Urban Lab project that's finally taking hold. You have to make that turn towards the port. So I literally stopped where the silos are, just facing Hibu Market. And I made a little turn and I parked there. Elias uh, al his photo is on the balcony. Mm -hmm. And there's a car that was pulling up right behind me. It was his uncle. And he introduced himself. Apparently, he knows who I am. And Elias Al-Khuri's photo is in the front of the car, the back of the car. <laughs> this is his uncle. He's wearing a pin of yeah. Elias Al-Khuri. The apartment is upstairs. He just starts talking about how he raised his nephew. And he was tearing up. And I think for maybe for the rest of the ride, coming here, that's all I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about us or what we're going to talk about. I'm certain about something. The pain and agony we're all going through is producing a very healthy battle of ideas, but I think all of us are standing on the right side. We want to end this nightmare. How we dissect the nightmare, what we take from it, how we look at it over time, individuals that come up, maybe we emphasize on certain ones and maybe we don't on others. I think all of us are trying to untangle this web in different ways. And this is why I celebrate what you do. And I was honored to support you when you were summoned. 
and anyone who can donate to the public source should donate. Laura, thank you for joining the podcast. May I briefly? Sure. Uh, Roni texted me a couple of days ago promising that this was going to be a fun exchange because we've had this back and forth banter and we, we teased each other even though we don't know each other very well. So I want to thank you for making this uh, a very enjoyable and very fun experience. Um, it was a real pleasure and an honor to be with you and I want to thank you for your very public support of the public source and for your invitation tonight. It's an honor. Thanks to the audience as well. Thank you. One other thing, check out Lada's website, ladajbitar.com, because every single panel you've been on on, the, on your time on planet Earth is there. I've seen her hairdo change. I've seen, I've seen her expressions shift over time. I'm going to take down that website no, tonight. No, keep that website. I actually got to know you much better there. You're delightful. <laughs> and you're very patient as well with everyone, including me. So the website is good. Also, you emphasize articles that you're proud of too. I'm, keep that I, website up. I haven't up. updated that website in a year, so keep it because don't, it's a don't check it out, please. It's it's a reflection of I think how you became a journalist yeah. and how you you're who you are today. I love that website. Follow the public source Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Follow Lada on Twitter. Don't follow her on Instagram. <laughs> follow her on Facebook if you want. It's the Beirut Banyan. Uh, next week is George Azar, if you guys know him. He's a filmmaker, AUB instructor, a photojournalist from the Civil War. You'll probably recognize his photo. It's the child yeah. carrying a photo of Martyr's Square post-war. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that photo and other photos as well. Thanks to everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.